welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hi, Squirrel. I'd say we're both tired. Is that accurate? <laughs> That's true. It was that uh, we had quite a day yesterday. We certainly did. We've been working very hard on the uh, book we're planning to write, Agile Conversations. Well, not planning to write, planning to publish. And we're uh, getting a lot of work done, but we, we, we've gotten stuck in one place. And so we thought actually we might have a, a slightly less um, disciplined, prepared for podcast. We might just talk about kind of the history of not only Agile, but also Lean and DevOps as movements. And the way we're describing these in the book is as humanist software movements. I'm just wondering, Jeffrey, what, what's your definition of a, a humanist software movement? How did how do those all come together? I, well, I, I was very influenced um, in my view of, of humans and software by Alistair Coburn. And um, he is particularly one article that he wrote, uh, which is uh, uh, people considered as first order nonlinear components of software development. I'm, I know we've talked about that before. I've probably blogged about it before and talked about it in talks. But the, the thing that was remarkable about it to me is he, he in the article, he, he talks about his prior roles of sort of selling a methodology and selling tools and then discovering that people were able to succeed without using his methodology or tools. <laughs> and yeah, sometimes in spite of it. Yeah, in spite that's right. <laughs> he, he, he makes a he makes an observation which has stuck with me, which is essentially that all of the methodologies he studied at these different projects, uh, in these different projects, that, that essentially every methodology might succeed or fail. And so the key element wasn't uh, the methodology, it wasn't the tools, it was the people. And uh, he also said it's therefore worth understanding the attributes of people. And I think it, to me, that is uh, when I think of what I, as a humanist based software uh, or any sort of practice, it's informed by a study of the attributes of people. And so what, how's that contrast with how things used to be? So you were involved earlier in in um, professional software development than I was. Uh, I got a little flavor of, uh, of of what that was like, but what, what's a non-humanist software development feel like? And some of our listeners are in that world and some are not, but we, our, our, our speech these days tends to kind of use those that, that notion that we tend to talk in, in terms that have been influenced by Agile DevOps and Lean. What, uh, what what did it used to look like? <laughs> well, I, ironically, or not, the, the word that comes to mind for me is uh, rationalist. <laughs> and mm, yeah. um, this is especially ironic to anyone who's around in the in the 90s and remembers Rational Rose and Rational Software Corporation. And I, and, and I, I don't mean to malign their tools, although that would be, uh, I think, easy for, for, uh, for people to do. Um, but I, I think it's the idea of... of uh, designing a system as though people were machines, as though they were interchangeable, and it's a it's a that's what I mean by a rational system. It seems like it's a seemingly logical system, and it, it it's the kind of thing you build up your flowcharts and you put in um, all of your equations, and you think, oh, this will all work great, and it seems like it would logically in practice, and just or it seems like it would logically, but in practice it falls apart, and it falls apart because people aren't machines, and it sounds like. Uh, the the classical kind of um, stereotype. It's not how they actually run, but the stereotype of how uh, an assembly line runs. So the the theory is that the people are machines, and of course we have now replaced many of them with machines that actually move uh, the the car along the conveyor belt and paint it and whatever. But 
um, the, the, the stereotype, if you've not actually worked on an assembly line, is that um, everybody's just a robot and they just do the same step over and over and over again. Mm. It, was that the feeling that you had back then? Well, that, I, I don't think that was ever successful. I, I think that's what, the, uh, what, they, what people tried to instill was the idea that you would be there as, a, as your coder in, in, in the machine and doing your part or a tester or a, an analyst or a documentation writer, whatever your specialty was and whatever little box you inhabited, you would go and do your bit. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what you had was the same uh, a problem that happens in, in factories, which is it turns out that, that what, what people are doing in factories also wasn't simple and robotic. Uh, which is why a great way that for people would go on strike would be quote unquote work to rule. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do this by the book. And as soon as everyone said, we're only doing what's, what's by the book, the whole thing falls apart. So actually any, all my break is exactly seven minutes. I'm not allowed to come back. I know that you're having a fire (laughs) over there and you know, that's, that's troubling. Yeah. But I think we might lose some, some kit, but you know, I got another two minutes. Sorry. Yeah. This is this is the mandated you know break. I'm requ- I'm not allowed to come back <laughs> until yeah. this is up for health and oh, safety crap. reasons. Plugging in that machine would make the whole thing run faster. I'm not allowed to plug things in. We better phone an electrician. Yeah, e- exactly. So when you when 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 people uh, work to rule, things typically fall apart. Be- and I think this is the idea that, that rationally you think, well, we're just going to write down um, all of the steps, and, and then anyone could do them. And and it will always work, but um, that this this fails on many dimensions. And, and the amazing thing is that humans are really really good at plugging the gaps, sort of coming in this in this gap between what you anticipated when you designed the system, what you anticipated when you wrote the rules, and what actually the facts are on the ground. And humans fill that gap wonderfully. Um, and it, and so that's any project that succeeded. You you might be using some one of these sort of rational. Uh, uh, you know, logic-based methodologies, and have it work great, and and have it be fantastic and a, and a joyous experience. But if that's the case, it's not down to uh, the system that was devised. It was the spirit with which the people who are doing it embraced it. But that wasn't the philosophy that um, most software development teams took in the 1990s. And so, how what was that like to work in one of those where you you were really part of the factory and the the consultants were showing up and saying, great, it's time to use rational rows. Did you welcome them with open <laughs> arms and say, this sounds great and it, it worked better for you? Or what well, was that experience like to, to, to work that way? Well, see, I, I personally never um, had to, uh, to experience that. And for people who aren't familiar, rational rows was a um, UML uh, design tool. And I think that it also then had a code generation aspect to it. And I remember, uh, so yeah. if people don't know, UML is universal modeling language. And uh, this goes back to the idea we're going to um, be able to encode our design process in a, in a set of boxes and, and arrows and whatnot. I actually was really liked UML diagrams for many ways. There, there were some very concise ways to convey information and to explain the, sort of the dynamics of the system. And um, Martin Fowler's UML Distilled, I think, might have been the first book by Martin Fowler that I ever read. Um, so it, uh, it, I have a kind of a soft spot in my heart for UML. And I think that it's a good example of, of the um, of the of the logic and the pluses and minuses of what was being developed. There there were some um, some some good innovations, but what then you asked my question is what would happen when 
uh, when UML came from a way that we're going to communicate with one another to, this is now the standard for the corporation. We've adopted the official, you know, some party line of how things are supposed to work. My own experience when I was at Borland was, um, uh, this is when Borland's troubled days, I was there from 92 to 97. So this is you know, probably around 95 or 96. And they brought in some outside consultants who brought this rather heavyweight methodology called um, product and cycle time excellence. And mm. I, I would put it in the family. Sounds great. How did it work? <laughs> it didn't work very well. I, I would put it in the category of, uh, these days of what I would call uh, docu- document-driven uh, development. Uh, you know, there was a document for everything and everything would be in a document. And because you wrote everything down, well, that way you knew what you're going to get and you knew what you're going to get it all very logically. Um, in, mm-hmm. in practice, it didn't work uh, very well at all. Uh, requirements are, are very difficult uh, to write. And uh, a lot of investment up front um, doesn't mean that you get a good product in the end. And, and it, was, it was my exposure to, this, the, to the logic that um, Agile later came about to said, you know, hey, let, uh, uh, let's try something different. It's you also had me get a very visceral feel for things I had read about in um, other software literature when they would talk about the difference of a um, defect in the requirements phase um, and catching it in the requirements phase versus catching it downstream and, and say in, in, when it reaches the client. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I could understand the logic of wanting to, to have a, a, a large set of requirements that we could inspect. What it, what it failed to um, uh, really describe was how the, the lack of feedback back in the requirements kind of compounded uh, the, the costs. So sort of um, large batch size uh, problems going on. Got it. And so at some point, you encountered some agile ideas. They, they, I don't think it had been named yet. Um, at that point, what what were those like? Was that um, uh, shocking? Were you opposed to them, or did you welcome them uh, excitedly? What experience did you have of uh, finding agile concepts, even though they weren't called that yet? I was really lucky in that um, when I worked at Borland, uh, there was a, a person named James Bach who's well known in the testing community, and he had a um, I think it was called the Silicon Valley testing. Uh, I can't remember now his group or association, but they, they, um, he had some meetings at the Borland campus, and I, I read some of his early material, where he talked about um, a more, I would say, human-centric approach, and he was talking about the kind of things uh, that would be like exploratory testing, um, where you would uh, sit down and have the informed people. Uh, do unplanned or you know not necessarily pre-planned testing, but sort of explore the software, and that that was a much more productive productive use of someone's time, using their intuition and experience to explore the software, rather than the alternative was the document-driven approach where you read the requirements and write up a test plan about how you're going to test all of them, and and. It, the worst case was going to the level of writing test scripts, but I don't mean test scripts that a computer would execute. No, but a human would execute as though they were a computer. Step one, do this. Step two, do that. Go to this dialogue. And terrifyingly, there's lots of lots and lots of people who still do exactly that today. <laughs> so that's not an unfamiliar concept, but uh, we, we now have lots of other concepts about how testing might work, right? Uh, including exploratory testing. But that must have been very shocking if, if everything was documented and then somebody said, let's throw the documents in the bin. 
that, that must have been quite quite disruptive, revolutionary. Well, I was lucky enough, I think, to, to get exposed to say James Bach first before Pace. I, it sort of me, I was I was it was inoculated a bit with things out of order, and then uh, and I remember then later on after I had left Borland and in the early days of the internet, at, while at Borland I had the ability to work with some developers who, for example, wrote automated tests uh, as a matter of course for what they were doing, and I also uh, wrote some automated tests while I was there. And then when I left and was doing testing at another company, uh, I remember uh, going to say, well, hey, now I'm working in Java. Uh, let me go see what kind of test automation you can do and I can do in Java and looking out in the world. And this is really what took me to the larger world of what became Agile. This is what was how I found extreme programming was looking for things about automated testing that, that led me to Ward's wiki and uh, the, the C2 wiki where the early extreme programming community was really forming. And it might've been around the time that they came up with the, the name of extreme programming for what they were doing, but it was a very sort of heady days. And you had these people sort of wrestling with various ways to, to, to shake up and break free of the document driven approach. And, and to, I would say have more humanistic ways of working ways that work better for people, uh, like pair programming, um, that, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's about where I come in. So at that point where you're discovering those things, I'm way behind you, but I've just joined the software workforce and I got lucky enough to join a company that actually had continuous integration, although we didn't call it that. And um, we only ran it um, periodically and and humans had to run everything. Uh, so you, you'd, you'd kick off lots of machines doing a lot of stuff and then monitor them um, in, in person and, and restart them when things went wrong, um, but did have the discipline of doing some form of continuous integration, which also was um, pretty, pretty exciting. That was, um, I remember being uh, really, really enjoying it when it was my turn to run the, the, the big machine that would um, test our software on, on lots of different operating systems. Is this what we would have called back in the day, the, the, the nightly build and smoke test? Yeah, you got it. That's exactly what it was called. Um, but but it, it wasn't quite so nightly. It was kind of when when we could get it to run. So uh, it was it was not terribly sophisticated. So these these new ideas about agile development and continuous integration. I mean, it wasn't even called agile yet. But the idea that you might iterate and get feedback. The idea that you might write write some tests and they'd be automated, and you might have people explore things rather than do them uh, by rote by following a script. Those were those were really new, and I think we would say that they are humanist. They are they are op- opposed to the rationalist um, "people are machines" approach. Is that accurate? Have I have I missed our our understanding? I I would agree with you, and I, I, I and perhaps maybe there's a, a different word in here, which is a bit more scientific than uh, rationalist in the sense that the people who were evolving these practices were doing it based on uh, not just on principles of uh, what I think humans are, but that was sort of a second thing. They sort of saw these things were, were being told would work, didn't work. And uh, we found other things that do work. What are the common threads between things that don't work or things that do work? And so I think the realization that the human aspects uh, were, were, were key, you know, for at least for some people uh, might have might have come later. But I think it was people who were willing to uh, say the emperor had no clothes, willing to say, look, some of these, some of these processes don't work and some, there's some that are better than others. The, the nightly build and smoke test. I remember, I think I got that from Steve McConnell and his book, rapid development and his list of best practices. 
Um, so that was the kind of thing that was out there in advance. And I think that the difference was when you had something like uh, Steve McConnell and putting that out in the best practices, that's so in a sense, the future was there. There were pieces there and people who were looking to find better ways. And, but it's what came later in the nineties with, with, with agile seemed to be much more of a revolution because it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't just changing things around the edges. It seemed to, to, to change how people were going to relate to one another in a very sort of fundamental way. Mm -hmm. And how would you tie that to what came a little bit later, although these things are all kind of mixed up together? That's one of the things we're stuck on in the in the book. And any listeners who have ideas about these things would be um, big help to us if we if we heard your thoughts on them. Um, the, 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 uh, the lean ideas actually came in earlier in the assembly line. So they came from Toyota from, from many, many years before, from the 70s, if not before. Um, but they came into software with the Papandique's book on lean software development in 2003, I hope I remember right. How did those come to your attention? Was that something you were hearing about in extreme programming? Because it was a conscious inspiration for Kent Beck, I know. Or um, was that uh, something that kind of came along as a second wave for you? I, I I remember reading on the on Ward's wiki people very explicitly referencing um, lean manufacturing as a source of inspiration. Um, I think the, the, in this late '90s there was very much a software crisis, and and uh, I remember the uh, chaos report from the Standish Group that talked about the amazing failure rate of software projects. Uh, so people were were looking around all over to other industries uh, to find. Uh, inspiration for better ways of doing things. I think this is part of where, say, design patterns came from, and you know, people looking out to uh, Christopher Alexander and pattern language, and uh, in architecture. So looking at actually building buildings, not not software architecture, but where do the stairs go, and and what's the pattern for <laughs> uh, you know how how you uh, how many floors you should have or whatever. That's right. I, because I think in part it was driven by a sense of humility that we, here we often will have the term software engineer, but it doesn't really feel like engineering. And I, I think a bit of looking around, what, what do real engineers do? Maybe we can learn from them. Because it sure ain't working, this this rationalist approach, this, uh, this, peop <laughs> this uh, people are machines, that, that's not working. Where, where can we find something else? So, so that's where the Papandiques then were kind of capturing an idea that was in, in the air uh, and and... Uh, coalesced it into Lean Software Development, the book, which um, uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing, I, I was not too au fait with these things at the time, but I'm, I'm guessing kind of captured some of the ideas we already had and, and made it more popular, um, that, that suddenly people who might not have been on the C2 wiki might have started talking about Lean notions. Is that right? Or am I misremembering? I, th I think that's right. And the, the Popmedics did that and, and it, it became discussable. And so it's, it's worth remembering that when uh, I think there in the early days of Agile, the extreme programming was really what people were doing. Anyone who said they were doing Agile software in 2001, 2002, almost all of them were, were actually doing extreme programming. And, uh, and I think Lean gave another point of reference. There were, there were actually several, there's kind of a Cambrian explosion <laughs> of, of different uh, schools of Agile in a time. And, and, and it, early on, Lean just kind of was one more among them. You might have picked up the the, the Lean uh, book from the Popniks or, say, Adaptive Software Development from Jim Highsmith. 
um, and, uh, along with your copy of Extreme Programming Explained and you, or uh, Crystal Clear, the crystal methodologies from, from Coburn. So you have these different uh, codifications of, of different uh, schools of, of um, all sort of humanist and, and agile. The, the, the Papanex, the really, um, th- there was the most direct translation of lean manufacturing uh, principles into uh, the software world. And so that became very helpful. Uh, I, I think as a point of reference, certainly for me, it helped me uh, make some very direct comparisons, gave me a new vocabulary to talk about uh, things such as the, the waste uh, of, of what we were doing. And um, I think, I think that, was, that was a very helpful phase uh, for me. And I know some of the others that I, that I worked with. And I think that we saw that come down most directly if we look to kind of what today would we say is the most visible, most common reminder of that would probably be Kanban. Uh, as a as a as a you know standard methodology, mm-hmm. although that's not in the Papandique's book. That's a, a later book. So these are the Cambrian explosion is continuing. <laughs> so there's more more ideas coming in. That, that's right. And I, I, what I mean, sort of descended there is the, the this idea of we're going to um, uh, once people had this sort of lean approach, they, they were looking for more ways. Well, how can we make what we're doing in software more of a pull system? How can we can we make the analogy? Uh, stronger between the lean manufacturing and software. Got it. And then there's one later one that's even after Kanban, uh, which is kind of toward the end of the explosion. I, I don't think we're having the explosion anymore. I don't know if you agree with me, but one that came late in the in the kind of uh, many species was the notion of DevOps, the idea that uh, developers and operators should should actually be friends. Um, radical <laughs> idea that that is that that maybe the humanist um, uh, program hadn't gone far enough. Uh, how did how did you experience that when it came in? I, I remember um, uh, the the article about doing the impossible fifty times a day and 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 really thinking it was impossible, and, and wondering whether the people were having us on. Yeah, right. That was Timothy Fitz and I am View uh, uh, when he when he wrote that because they were releasing two live fifty times a day. That was that was shocking. Yeah, and see, well, for me, that was right up the, the right up kind of my alley in a sense. Of course, um, because I right and you, you say of course because I was working on cruise control from uh, about two thousand one, two thousand two. So a very we, early continuous integration tool. Yeah. yeah, CI tool, right? So some people remember it, and other people will be like, "What is that?" And we say, "That's it's kind of like what used you know be Jenkins before Jenkins or yep. something." You know, that's exactly right. So that's a way, way to think about it, or uh, I guess for the really new people, you know, it was it was like Travis CI when you had to install software locally or something yep. like that. There you go. But so, what was DevOps like? So, so this idea came in that, that you'd be releasing frequently, that your operators, the people who are deploying the software, would actually be in your team. Uh, how did that how did that feel when it when it showed up? Well, from, from, I'm going to say first from my perspective, and I and I think I there was something that I I didn't quite get. So for me, uh, you know, in in, in 2006, I started the conference uh, along with Paul Julius, on um, which is KitCon, Continuous Integration Testing Conference. And every year, what we could see is this common pattern of automating more and more, and and the question of how 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 much could we do of CI, making the continuous integration pipeline end to end. And that was a phrase we were talking about: is end to end continuous integration, in, including in CI out to production. How could we be automating this out to production? So there was this push side from uh, from software developers who were trying to say, how far can I take this out? And, and with because really the, hunger, the standard at the time, when you ran cruise control, it didn't have a way to deploy naturally. I mean, you could make it do so, but it, it wasn't built with a thing that says, and, and here's your deploy step, put it here. It's like, run all your tests, and then it's either green or red. Then Yeah, that's them. right. 
then hand it over to the operators who will go do a different thing. But there's this pressure to bring it together. Right. And now what I didn't know at the time, but is, is, is that sort of in this, in this parallel world <laughs> of, of operations is you had some other people who, you know, were, were, um, I think there's a certain amount of people who were hybrids who kind of moved naturally back and forth between the, the development operations worlds who, uh, rather than sort of, uh, you know, on the one hand, you had some software developers pushing things in operations, but here you have people who were pulling ideas over and looking to do more and more automation uh, of what they were doing. And it, and I think you the name uh, DevOps was coined by Patrick Dubois in, I believe, 2009. And, you know, he had, he, you could see this was ready because he had said that you were the year before, like, is this the year of the agile system administrator? And then, uh, he was, when he started finding other people, they, they, you suddenly had this, um, uh, to me, the effect was just, it was, it was almost magical what happened. It was like, you had a super saturated solution of all these people who were ready for something. And then this crystallized this, and then they all needed said, ah, seed. what we need is a DevOps thing. Now it's got a name. When, when DevOps came and the name is that you, it really captured the energy from both sides, from both, both camps. Yep. Uh, and, it, and it developed quite rapidly. And, and on the one hand, you might look and say, well, how is it really different than end-to-end -end continuous integration? Or how, how is it different than continuous deployment? But what was really different was bringing in people with a real uh, different history and a different uh, uh, culture and different mindset and, a, and a, a real appreciation for what it takes to run a system uh, and the complexities involved that the software developers were very often blind to that were, uh, you know, they're kind of the hubris. Well, it's just software, but they didn't really understand the emergent complexity of running this stuff for real, uh, and, and the complexity that, that added. But if we then wrap it all the way back to you back at Borland with, uh, uh, you know, having your mind blown by the idea that you might write some automated tests and so on, we've got the DevOps people writing uh, automated tests for their servers and checking that, that they're configured correctly. And you have, uh, and you know, when both of us are, are, are locked in this kind of document-driven world that, that we both started in, and, and suddenly instead of having a 17-step process for how you deploy or a 700 step process. I remember the first one I wrote, it took at least six pages and um, that you, you'd actually not only automate that, but do it very frequently. So you could get lots of feedback. Those, those do say, there is a continuum there. It seems to me. Do, do you see it that way? I, I, I think on one hand there's a continuum, but what I, what I really, my uh, feeling has been, has been this uh, really has been a contagion. <laughs> it has been like the mimetic virus around re-examining what we're doing and transforming the way we work and it and for whatever reason i do think it started in with software developers but it has spread out and it and you have these sort of concentric waves coming out and we and uh and it, when it gets to different um practices it, it kind of morphs a bit and changes but it's it's still the same wave spreading out so in a good example we talked about lean and a lot of people would would when they hear about lean, they don't think of the Poppendix. They probably think of lean, uh, uh, the lean startup, yeah, uh, which is a, a, a very different thing. And now it's this is about business value. And I think in the worlds of say um, designers, uh, they're often feel more uh, um, akin and more at home to the world of lean uh, because of that connection to producing value and minimum viable product and things of that nature. And and they would see maybe the uh, agile camp as 
a, a bit different. And I've recently come across different articles where people would say, you know, kind of pointing back this, as those agile developers are the problem, you know, they just are always focused on their unit tests and their refactoring. <laughs> I find that quite surprising, the kind of silos that uh, um, develop or, or really more accurately remain. Um, but it, but I'm, I'm hopeful that this sort of meme is eventually tearing things down and, and that people will be more able to, to collaborate. And similarly, I think DevOps is that, is that sort of that meme reaching, uh, operations and, and transforming it, um, so that, uh, we do his, is, is we have this sort of, um, way that's right now encompassing more and more of, uh, of how people work and at its core is this sort of experimental scientific and ultimately it must ultimately uh, be a, a humanist uh, type of solution because if we go back it's going to be humans as first order components of software development it has to be any successful project uh, um, or any methodology here has to uh, ultimately work because it works with the way humans are it works with human characteristics and that will eventually bind all of these uh, different schools and camps together, they're they're not going to have a successful, sustainable approach that uh, doesn't ultimately recognize people in their uh, in, in all their vagaries and weirdnesses. So, so I've got bad news and good news. In the interest of sending our our listeners away happy, I will I will start with the bad news. <laughs> the, the bad news is that um, there are lots of people doing agile, and they tend to capitalize it, and they tend not to use it as an adjective to modify anything. And uh, they're they're doing just the same kind of document driven, factory driven kind of work. It's just it, it's in it's in teams of six instead of teams of six hundred. Right. So um, that's no news to anyone. But um, that's actually why we're writing the book because we'd like to remind people who are doing that that they, they aren't actually operating in, in in concert with the original principles that actually make it work. You did give me a really good aha with saying we, that you know in the nineties we would have said we had the software factory. And now it's the feature factory. <laughs> yep. And, and it's just the same thing, just different labels on the machines. So we have our, instead of a Gantt chart, we have a burndown chart <laughs> and you know, it's, it's all the same kind of thing. And that's, that's dangerous. That's, that's what the book is about is, is how to get out of uh, that, um, uh, that trap. Uh, but I also have some good news, which is that uh, some agile principles are even getting farther than uh, software world. So um, I know of a company that is doing very well with a product that helps you, uh, we'll put it in the show notes in case anybody's interested, that helps your your sales team to operate in an agile way. It actually produces a burn down chart for your sales team. And so they don't have to, they don't have commissions. So that's a shock. <laughs> that's really going to blow them away. Um, and they have to cooperate on uh, producing a, a, a quota for the month. And they're, they're uh, burning down toward that quota. Um, it's quite successful. It worked very well for Stack Overflow, which is uh, essentially spun it out. It's come from a, a person from there who, uh, who used it for their sales operation for their um, recruitment product. So we'll put that in the uh, in the show notes. So the 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 contagion continues, <laughs> the uh, the wave continues, and it is affecting more and more groups. the The question is, um, can can we keep up with what the original spirit was? Which is a, a spirit of of uh, of being willing to to point out things that don't work and keep searching for things that do, and uh, ultimately one of the things it, it is to to uh, I think look beyond just technique and and to look at each other <laughs> and say um you know how do we relate to one another 
what what is the humanist way of approaching this instead of the you're a human not a machine how, how can i work with you so uh if our listeners are machines then uh we'd be happy to hear from you about a, an opposing view um if you're not a machine uh, then we'd like to hear about how this how this has affected you we'd we've been very rambling today so uh any anyone who had a a notion about where we're trying to go and had a response and was interested we'd really really appreciate it would help us we have two weeks till the book is due and we're struggling with this chapter. We're struggling with getting this idea right. So we thought if we rambled a while in your ears, some of you might also have some ideas. And it's, it certainly helped me. I, uh, has it helped you, Jeffrey? I, I think so. And it will also be great if we have some people who disagree with us and, uh, and argue uh, point of views uh, and that kind of uh, creative conflict uh, over the interwebs <laughs> could could be really helpful inspiration for us in this uh, as we, we, we get ourselves towards the drag ourselves towards the finish line. Uh, well, as we sprint toward the finish line with excitement, I'm trying to yes. trying to give us the top, most positive <laughs> point of view. Or the, we're both pretty tired. Excellent. So uh, uh, if you would like to tell us that you're a machine or a person or anything else who has an experience with this, uh, you can find us on troubleshootingagile.com, as always. Uh, email, Twitter, all those good things. We like it when you subscribe. So please do that and uh, listen to us every Wednesday. And uh, Jeffrey will be back uh, next week, hopefully slightly less tired and, and having conquered this chapter. That's right. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Carl.